0: Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Jarvis. Today, I'm looking at how scientists and policymakers have looked at feeding people over the past 50 years or so. If you think about it, at a very basic level, there are really three aspects to feeding the world. First, there's how much food you can produce, productivity. Second, there's how much food do people need to eat per capita food demand, which is essentially the level of consumption. But there's a third, obviously, which is the number of people doing the eating, the population. When I was a young student in the late 1960s, population was what we worried about. We'd all read Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. Many of us had read Malthus, and as biologists, we couldn't begin to understand how anyone could disagree. And we talked about it at student meetings under banners that read Stop at Two. Some people thought we were misguided. I remember in the department canteen after one of those meetings, a Nobel Prize winner, perhaps the Nobel Prize winner, squeezing my thigh a little too enthusiastically and saying, You know, the people who say stop at two are the ones who should be having more than two. But something happened. After a flurry of interest ignited by the population bomb and limits to growth from the Club of Rome, population more or less vanished from discussions about feeding the planet. At least, that's how it seemed to me. Whenever you raised the question of population, economists mostly rose up to tell you there was nothing to worry about. Production was the thing, and Malthus be damned. Then, a few weeks ago, a paper flitted across my radar with the title, From Population to Production, 50 Years of Scientific Literature on How to Feed the World. And it confirmed my gut feeling population was the least important of the three factors, way behind production and consumption. The paper came from a multidisciplinary team in Sweden, who did a textual analysis of all the published papers they could find starting in 1959, about 13,000 of them. I asked one of the authors, Jan Giacomo Bravo, of Linnaeus University in Sweden, to help me understand what they'd found. The main trend, the most important trend
1: of it it all, is an increase of what we label production. So it's basically the ideas that link to technology used to produce food. So over these 50 years, there's been an increasing focus on how to produce more food or food in a different way um, and so on. Basically, technological change. There is one declining trend, which is the the one on population, which, of course, was a kind of hot topic in the late 60s, early 70s. Exactly as I remembered. But then it is declining over time. And the third, which is a non-trend, is the one linked to what we call the demand per capita. So basically the amount of food and the amount of basically resources linked to food that each single individual is asking. And the surprising thing is that this, this kind of potential level has been really low all the time. There are very few scientific work discussing it, which is a little bit uh, surprising to us because at least at the political level, there are more and more people, for instance, talking about uh, eating less meat uh, or changing our dietary
0: patterns and so on. Demand per capita influences things like diet for a small planet in 1971, which harks straight back to the population bomb, right up to the very recent Eat Lancet report. Both of those, and lots of others in between, were trying to reduce the demand per capita. And in a way, that's one of the few things that limits to growth got wrong back in the early 1970s. The point about limits to growth, which people forget, is that it wasn't a forecast. It was a set of scenarios based on a global world model of what would happen under different sorts of assumptions about how we might change our behaviour. It looked at a variety of indicators and asked what would happen to them as we move towards 2050. One of the indicators they looked at was not demand, but food produced per capita. Fifty years after Limits to Growth, one of its authors, Jörgen Randers, gave a presentation looking back at each of the indicators to see what had actually happened.
2: Uh, Next one. This is food per capita. This is the amount of, of food that the world has actually produced per person over the last 50 years. And here you see that Limits was wrong. All the 12 scenarios in the Limits to Growth book expected the world to produce more food than the world has actually done over the last 50 years.
0: And that's interesting, because although most people thought that limits to growth was overly pessimistic, on that one limit, food produced per capita. It was overly optimistic. We didn't produce as much food per person as they expected. Why not? That's a question that's barely been asked, let alone answered. Maybe because population continued to outstrip technical advances. It's hard now to remember what we were all so worried about at the end of the 60s. A lot of it was to do with the way Paul Ehrlich, among others, expressed the problem. Here he is, in 1969, explaining population growth and scaring the bejesus out of Sacramento City College.
3: Well, it took from about 6,000 B.C. to about 1650 A.D. to run that 5 million population up to about 500 million, which means that during that period, there had to be a doubling of the population about every 1,000 years. It took from 1650 to 1850 to double from 500 million, that's a half a billion, to a billion. It took from 1850 to 1930 to double from one to two billion, 80 years. We will hit four billion around 1975. That is 45 years to double that time. Now, at the moment, I said we have a doubling time of about 35 years. Now, actually, that's an average, a sort of average of two general classes of doubling times. In the overdeveloped countries like the United States, Western Europe, the Soviet Union, Japan, and a few others, we have doubling times that run generally between 65 and 150 years. Now, if you know anything about compound interest, you know that those rates are enough to take you to astronomical figures almost instantly anyway, as far as historical time is concerned. They're incredibly fast, but they're slow in comparison with the doubling times in the so-called underdeveloped countries, the never-to-be-developed countries, where doubling times now are often in the vicinity of 20 years and rarely as slow as 30 years. In fact. If you project the current doubling time of 35 years, you might be silly enough to think that there will be 7 billion people on the planet in the year 2000. As you know, there are just about 3.6 billion now. I can guarantee you there will never be 7 billion people on this planet in the year 2000. Not a chance.
0: Okay, so Ehrlich was completely wrong about that. But getting back to Gian Giacomo Bravo's analysis of the past 50 years of scientific papers on feeding the world, population is by far the most important factor at the start. Then there's a steep decline to about 1982, then it levels off till the early to mid-1990s, and then it drops again and keeps dropping. Basically,
1: especially the publication of the population bomb and a few other articles, just created a a a small boom uh, of papers on the same topic at the very beginning of the 70s, but which already was declining quite a lot. I mean, it was a kind of spike, but very, very short. Then, after uh, the beginning of the 90s,
0: then I think this is a more uh, significant decline. That decline is felt not just in food and agriculture, but much more widely. Population essentially drops out of the political discourse after 1994.
3: Welcome to Newsweek On Air. The population crisis and the population controversy... We'll preview the big U.N. conference in Cairo with a focus on teeming masses, terrorist threats, and growing ties between Islam and the Vatican. Indeed, there is sharp controversy over the fundamental focus of the conference itself and the real threat of overpopulation. On one hand, there has never been such a crush of humanity, 5.7 billion people this year, 6.2 billion by the end of 1999, and a predicted 10 billion by the year 2050, with 93% of new births in the poor areas of Africa, Latin America, and Asia, on the other hand, birth rates have been falling worldwide, and many economists say that free markets and modern science will find ways to spread resources. For our preview of the Population Conference and the controversy, we have Cairo Bureau Chief Chris Dickey, Religion Editor Ken Woodward, and Robert Hershby. The
0: Cairo, the Cairo Conference, Conference basically made it politically taboo to talk about population control, even voluntary family planning. You could talk about education, and even more so about women's health and reproductive rights, but not about population directly. The take-home message was often summarised as development is the best contraceptive. And in many countries, economic development and slower population growth did go hand in hand. But that raises another problem for food supply, because what people want to eat is completely dependent on what they can afford to eat. When you just have one step ahead of
1: starving, what you want to do is to eat and you want to do to eat better, which means for most people meat. Historically, what happens is that when a country is moving from a low income to middle income, the consumption of meat increased really quickly. I mean, it's the first consumption of all kind of luxury goods, so to say, increasing. So even, I mean, the the countries that are consuming more meat are actually not necessarily the the wealthiest ones, are often uh,
0: middle-income ones. Unless it's already a deeply rooted part of your culture, you have to be pretty wealthy to turn back to a vegetarian or vegan diet and animal source foods require far more resources, which is why Diet for a Small Planet and Eat Lancet, among others, say we should scale back. All that was actually already obvious at the
4: time of the Cairo Conference. The consumption levels of the First World have definitely to go down. Joseph van Arendonk effectively
0: ran the Cairo Conference for the United Nations.
4: And indeed, if the first world point to the third world in terms of their growth rates because of environmental conditions, for instance, then at the same time, with good reason, the third world points at the first world that their consumption is affecting the environment in a bad way or even worse. If population levels are not stabilized in the future and there is thus a great increase in population, and especially, again, in those countries which can least afford it, then what I foresee is that you get a situation of enormous civil strife, that people who have nothing, who have no hope, no opportunity, will simply become a a momentum of insecurity to these countries. And not only inside the country they will start moving as we already see happening first of all they move from the agricultural areas to the urban areas, the urban centers become unlivable then they will cross borders and go to other countries and that by itself will create strife and one can well foresee then a long period of a lot of wars internal wars wars between countries with mass movement of people, a lot of suffering, a lot of misery, and together with this, also large epidemics, um, a situation which indeed makes life almost impossible. And that is what we have to start realizing. In other words, if we do not address it and we let things go the natural way, so to say, then the natural way will be that nature will take its own decision, but that decision will not be a funny one. That will be a very, very sour one for everybody.
0: So yes, we've heard it all before, and that was 27 years ago. These days, of course, you hear a lot about the food system. And although different people mean different things by that, the one thing they all have in common is that they're complex, with lots of moving parts. And if you look even wider, you see the complex mesh that binds economic development to what people want to eat and can afford to eat. Increased productivity may bring down prices, but it damages the environment, and it's probably not sustainable. It may also make poor farmers poorer, and as Joseph van said, when people have nothing, they have nothing to lose. So, there's a final twist to that textual analysis of 13,000 papers on how to feed the world over the past 50 years. The three areas, production, consumption, and population, are very closely linked. And yet, very few papers consider all three together. For the first 25 years, it's about 4%. For the second half, it's less than 2%. I really would have expected it to stay the same or even increase as researchers and maybe politicians too understood the complexities.
1: Yeah, that's actually something that surprised me as well in the sense that over time that there's been more and more emphasis on uh, interdisciplinary research, for instance, and these kinds of things. And of course, if you want to cover all three areas, you need to have some kind of interdisciplinary team because the, the production technology... Is something for people doing agronomy, for instance. The changes in behavior and diet, it's more for social scientists and so on. Uh, This has not been the case, and that's surprising. Uh, A part of it could be because of the, the possibility for fundings you have. Another part of it is that, unfortunately, in my opinion this uh, basically uh, idea of having a lot of multidisciplinary interdisciplinary work and so on is often some nice words that you can find uh, around in the policy documents uh, steering the university but not in the reality of uh, every work where we tend to be in our discipline and work with people in our
0: discipline (laughs) it's it's the minute you start to pick at any of the... I mean, this is the thing that, that, that gets me and that I've been, you know, not just me, but a lot of people have been saying for a while now is that we've got this thing called a food system. And as soon as you start to pick at one part of it, the whole... You, you just get taken in all kinds of directions and, and end up in places you never thought you'd, you'd, you'd be. I,
1: I totally agree. That, that was actually our, our point. I mean... The, the problem of feeding the world is closely connected with, with with development but it's also closely connected with environment and, and everything and, and which is closely connected of course with economic development and so on. Uh, that's really the the problem we have now it's a little bit the perfect storm because we are we are pushing at the limit different things at the same time. Not just we just don't have one environmental crisis. We just don't have some uh, food crisis, which actually things have, have improved quite a lot in terms of feeding the world in a strict sense yeah. since, uh, well, since the early times, since the the sixties and the seventies. But but at the same time, we have different basically trends coming together in producing a situation which is potentially very difficult or even catastrophic. Uh, the real issue is that we don't know how to change people's behavior. That's a big failure of social sciences, in my view. We know how to do many things, but we don't know how to change people's behavior when we decide to do it, especially if you, we don't want to use coercion.
0: You, we don't want to limit human rights. Gian Giacomo Bravo. Of Linnaeus University in Sweden, setting out just a few of the issues that make feeding the world a truly wicked problem. There are signs that food production per capita is improving, though probably not sustainably. Jorgen Randers looking 40 years ahead.
2: On the food side, very interestingly, the forecast is that you know, finally over the next 40 years we will do yet another increase in the food per capita of the order of 20 to 30%. And since the population is also increasing, this means that the food sector will probably produce 50% more food in 2050 than now. And so here you see the forecast moves back into the fan of opportunities made in 1972.
0: I confess I remain pretty pessimistic, and I still think that population is the fundamental problem. Not that I want to see coercion, but I do think that if we want to avoid the sorts of scenes that Joseph van Arundonck described back in nineteen ninety four, we who can afford it ought to be a lot more generous in helping countries towards sustainable development, better education and health, and especially for women.
3: You might be silly enough to think that there will be 7 billion people on the planet in the year 2000. I can guarantee you there will never be 7 billion people on this planet in the year 2000.
0: Paul Ehrlich definitely got some things wrong. But his basic point was correct, and the population bomb did kick start the discussion. It was Ehrlich's bad luck to be talking about population growth just a couple of years after the Green Revolution Made it possible to grow a whole lot more food. That, as much as anything, took population off the table. Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, got his Nobel Peace Prize in 1970, just two years after the publication of the population bomb. But he was under no illusions about having solved the problem of how to feed the world. In his Nobel lecture, he said, The Green Revolution has won a temporary success in man's war against hunger and deprivation. It has given man a breathing space. If fully implemented, the revolution can provide sufficient food for sustenance during the next three decades. But the frightening power of human reproduction must also be curbed. Otherwise, the success of the Green Revolution will be ephemeral only. Okay, there is a problem with that word curbed, just as there was with Ehrlich's never-to-be-developed countries, but the basic warning remains true, just as it was for Malthus. Population, unchecked, will always outstrip food supply. That's not pessimistic or optimistic. It's realistic. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. My thanks again to Jan Giacomo Bravo and his colleagues for their thought-provoking analysis and to the various places where I'd picked up some archive material. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with something more like my usual fare. Till then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.